Good evening. Uh, we're going to keep on going in First Peter this evening, and the passage we're going to be covering tonight is First Peter one thirteen to twenty one, and I'll be doing the first uh, few verses there to verse sixteen. So I'll just go ahead and read the passage to start. Therefore, prepare your, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I think the, the main purpose of this whole section and the rest of the chapter to the end there is to begin to show how to live in light of all the glorious truths that have been presented uh, by Peter up to this point. Um, till now, Peter's presented a lot of doctrinal, theological, like amazing, lofty truths, and now he's going to kind of bring that down into the practical and say, like, how does that affect our lives now? Um, so he says, therefore, because of these things, because we're exiles, in verse 1, because God chose us, verse 2, because the Spirit is sanctifying us, because we are to obey Christ, because of God's grace and peace, because of God's great mercy, verse 3, because we were born again, because Christ rose from the dead as our living hope, because we have an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, verse 4, because we are guarded for salvation, verse 5, because we are grieved by various trials, in verse 6, because our faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed, verse 7, because we love him, verse 8, because we rejoice with inexpressible joy, because we are obtaining the salvation of our souls as the outcome of our faith, verse 9, and because of the sufferings of Christ in verse 11. He says, because of all this, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And Peter is going to speak into some difficult things in this book and things that his audience aren't naturally going to be inclined to do or even able to do in their own strength. And he presents a clash between the awful world that we find ourselves living in and all these amazing things that he's talked about that we are promised in our future. And he's going to tell us how we can live in light of both of those truths. The phrase, prepare your mind for action, is often translated that way. It's literally to gird up the loins of your mind. And back in the day when people were getting ready for work or to fight or to travel, they had to gather up the loose fabric from the robes, tuck it in around their waist so it wouldn't get in the way. And so Peter is saying here, get ready, like don't just relax or give up. You need to actually prepare for action. And when life gets difficult, we have an actual motivation to prepare for action and to carry on for the Lord. And Peter goes into that a little bit more in the next section. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. The Greek word is nepho, and it means, according to Blue Letter Bible, to be sober, to be calm, collected in spirit, to be temperate, dispassionate, circumspect. And it has this idea of not being controlled by outside influences or being swayed one way or another easily, but being solid, grounded, present in the moment, aware of what's going on and able to react in a way that actually makes sense in the situation. And if you think about it, the opposite of sober-minded is a drunk person. And a drunk person is someone who's controlled completely by something else. They're controlled by alcohol. And they're reactionary. They lash out. When they encounter something, they can't actually think through it in the logical way that they should and do what's right. 
But as Christians, we are to live a life of a sober mind, not just reacting randomly to things, not unstable or illogical. I think that it is very easy, though, to be controlled by a lot of these other things and not be sober-minded. And as I thought about this, there were kind of three things that just first came to mind that I thought of that we can easily be controlled by as Christians. Um, Fear, desire, and apathy. And I think especially for these persecuted believers that Peter was writing to, it'd be very easy to be controlled by fear, whether that's fear of persecution, fear of shame, fear of suffering. I think that we can have those same fears, maybe some of them not as much, but we have all kinds of other fears in our life that we could be controlled by. But we're told here to be sober-minded, to be calm, collected in spirit, not reacting out of fear to all these things. Um, Another one was desire. We see people in the world all around us living completely for their desire of possessions, uh, desire for comfort, for ease, for popularity, whatever it might be. It's different for each of us. Um, We can be inadvertently controlled by a lot of these things, but rather than being controlled by those outside influences, God would have us to be controlled by his word. And finally, laziness or apathy. I think that that's another thing that we can very subconsciously be controlled by when God presents us with something that he would have us do. It's easy to just go with the flow, ignore that, do our own thing. But the Christian life requires a soberness of mind and an ability to see a situation. And instead of reacting how our old sinful nature would have reacted to react in a way that God would have us act. Um, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this, setting your hope fully, this is the central focus of this sentence. And Peter's saying that because of all the things that he's talked about so far, and because of all the things that he's going to bring up in the rest of the book, we need to set our hope completely on the grace that will come. Uh, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 1 and 3 to 9 specifically have spoken a lot about future things, the grace to be revealed. And I believe that when we're facing difficulties and trials, one of the only places that we can truly look for hope is the things to come, the things that God has promised us will happen. Uh, it's interesting as I thought about this that I think we can also find a lot of hope in the past. Um, many times in the Old Testament, God told Israel to set up a feast or a festival, pile up some stones, whatever, so they could remember something that God had done. But it wasn't just so they could look at that and be like, okay, cool, whatever. It was so that they could remember what he'd done, realize that he'd be faithful in the present, what they were going through, and then also know that he would be faithful again in the future to fulfill his promises. And the Psalms as well are full of this. They often recount God's past faithfulness, so the psalmist can know the same thing. God was faithful, he will be faithful now, and he will also do what he has promised that he will do in the future. So the things to come, we can be sure of because of what God has done in the past, and the things to come are the things that give us hope, because no matter what we're going through now, we can strive towards what will come after, and we we can be certain that God will fulfill that. Um, An example I thought of A few years ago, me and my siblings found out that the Adirondacks in New York are only like a two-hour drive from Ottawa, and so we started going to hike in these actual mountains. And as you drive up to a mountain, you can see the top of the mountain far off coming up, and you're inspired to 
get to the top to see what's up there. But as you get to the bottom of the mountain and start on the trail, you're surrounded by trees, there's mud, there's mosquitoes. It's not very glamorous. And you can hike for like an hour or two before you see anything cool. But suddenly you'll come out on this overlook and you'll see beauty all around you. And you can often look up and you can see the peak again, way off in the distance. And it's a reminder that, yeah, we're actually working towards something. All along, along the way, there'll be signs, there'll be people telling you, keep on going, the top's worth it if they're coming back down. And it helps to know that the end of your journey is beautiful, because if it's not, why are we doing what we're doing? And Peter here has also presented this beautiful ending for his audience, so they can know that their life is leading somewhere, and there's a purpose to it, and it's actually worth going through everything that they need to go through to get there. So before moving on to the do's in the epistle, Peter has set this proper foundation of the correct mindset because the way that we think determines our attitude towards life and our outlook towards life, and that ultimately determines what our actions will be. A question that I have to ask myself as, this read, as I read this verse is, do I live with my mind soberly prepared for action by the grace of God? Not by guilt, not by fear, not by ambition. Those things have their place, but primarily by hope. I think that um, those other things, some of them have their place. But first and foremost, we should look always to the grace of God in every situation in life. And that is what Peter presents here, first and foremost, is the future grace to be revealed. Um, so putting our hope in something to come, that requires confidence. And we gain that by looking at God's character, understanding who he is, what he has done, and what he's promised to do. Um, and Peter has presented this as the foundation for motivation for living a holy life. And in the next verses, he goes on to talk about that more. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I think that we're all more or less familiar with the concept of being children of God. Um, Peter has alluded to this already in verse 3. He said that we are born again to a living hope. And if we're born again, then we're born as children of someone. And as Christians, we are children of God. In verse 4, he said we have an inheritance. And who receives an inheritance? Children. And as children, we have this place of security and belonging and privilege with God. But that also comes with an obligation to live in obedience to the Father. And that obedience... Peter says, involves not being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We're told here that we were ignorant, what we were ignorant of. I think that there are so many things that you could go into, but thinking of the context here, I think that we were ignorant of the grace of God, we were ignorant of what is right, of holiness, and we were ignorant of the gospel. And when we were ignorant, we lived according to the passions of the sinful, corrupt, evil nature that we had. That was the only option that we had, was to live in that way. But now as children, we are not expected to be ignorant anymore. We're expected to know the Father. We're expected to know the rules of the household, as it were. We're expected to know why we belong to the family, to know the future grace that we're guaranteed. And we're expected to live in obedience to those things. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but 
as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So God, the one who called us, he is holy. What does it mean to be holy? I think that first and foremost, it means to be set apart from what is common and therefore set apart from sin. And God is certainly set apart from those things. And as he is set apart, we're supposed to be set apart also. It's important to note here that throughout the New Testament, God only calls us to live as people, to live in a way that he has already made us. And when God made us holy in Christ, he justified us. He made us holy according to his character. And now he has provided the spirit as well to lead us in that same holy life. We can't be holy in our own strength. We're incapable of that as humans. And so God doesn't just say, be holy because I want you to be holy. He says here, be holy because I am holy and I live in you. And we simply have to choose to submit to the spirit as moment by moment he guides us into that holiness that we actually already have in Christ. Verse 16 says, it is written, <clears throat> and this is quoted from Leviticus 11.44, and in that, well, in the whole book, God is giving instructions to his people Israel that will set them apart and make them unique from the nations around them. And in the middle of this section that's talking about what is clean and unclean, God kind of randomly puts in this little phrase, you shall be holy because I am holy. And he's reminding them there, the Israelites, that there's a purpose to all these rules that he's giving them. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts for no reason. It's because they are his special chosen people, and he wants them to live in a manner that sets them apart from the people around them, and that shows the character of God to the people around them as well. And as believers, we are also God's special chosen people. And he wants us to act in a way that is consistent with that, and in a way that shows forth his character to the people around us. This epistle was written primarily to Jewish background believers, it seems, from just a lot of the things that are said. And they would have picked up on a lot of the Old Testament references that we kind of gloss over in some of those connections. They would have made in their minds more clearly. Uh, back in verse 1, Peter said that they are exiles. And the people receiving Leviticus, where Peter just quoted this from, they were also exiles at this point. They had left Egypt, they had not yet come into the promised land, and they were wandering in the wilderness. They were strangers without a home. And the original audience of this epistle would have identified strongly with that, that sense of not belonging. And we can also identify strongly with that because we don't actually belong here on this earth. We have a citizenship in heaven, and we are expected to live in a way that honors the ruler of heaven, who is God, and to represent his character, character well. Um, I don't really have a good summary for this section or ending for this section because I think that it really carries on into what Jonathan's going to talk about. It's all kind of connected in a way. But just to summarize that, be sober-minded, prepare for action, set your hope fully on the grace that is to come, not on anything else, because God has promised that he will do a work and he will do it. And because we hope, <clears throat> we have this confident hope in God, let us live our lives also in an obedient, holy manner that is patterned after the character of God himself.